Grab your Bibles. Open up to Romans chapter 3. We are not uh, doing a typical Christmas series this year. Um, I want to take the next couple Sundays to finish off Romans chapter 3. And what I want to do, though, is maybe impress upon you how what we're looking at here is incredibly relevant to the Christmas season. Oftentimes, we like to focus on the the birth of Jesus, and we rightly should, and we're going to do that on Christmas Eve, and it's going to be a sweet time together. But we got to remember that the incarnation, the Christmas story, doesn't start, nor does it finish with the birth of Jesus. The Christmas story is pointing us towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was always about the cross. It was always supposed to get us there. And that's exactly what Paul is getting us to in Romans chapter 3 this morning in this section. And I'm so glad that we're finally here. If you've been with us over the past couple months, one of the things you've noticed is that we've been in a really kind of heavy, weighty section of the Word of God. Romans 1 through 3, Paul has been hammering us with this idea of sin. He's been like a lawyer who has been prosecuting all of humanity and proving in the legal sense, like we saw last week, that all of humanity stands before God guilty, condemned, not one of us has an excuse, nobody can open their mouth in defense, we all stand accountable to God, nobody is off the hook. It's almost been like there has been this weight upon our chest, this weight of of sin that's suffocating us. And we get to this point in the letter in Romans chapter 3, and Paul now begins to turn the corner. And here we get to some of the most powerful sections and verses in all of Scripture, but it's important to not miss what Paul has been doing here. He's wanted to intentionally and purposefully get us to this place where the weight of sin crushes us. You say, why in the world does Paul do this? Here's the answer, because where there is no recognition of sin, there is no perceived need of the saving work of Christ. Where there is no recognition of your sin, your culpability before God, there will never be a perceived need for the saving work of Jesus Christ. You will never understand why the gospel is necessary until you understand how great your sin is how dire your plight is. If we cannot see our unrighteousness, we will never seek His righteousness. And at this point in the book of Romans, like I said, Paul begins to turn a corner and we finally get to this place where we feel like the weight is being lifted, we can finally breathe, there is hope, there is an answer. For here we find the solution to the problem of sin. This is the great turning point in the book of Romans. It is the great turning point in redemptive history, and I trust that what we look at today has in fact been the great turning point for your life. This section has been called the marrow of theology. It's been called the center and heart of this entire letter. Dr. Leon Morris suggested it is possibly, he says, the most important single paragraph ever written. John Calvin declared that there is not probably in the whole Bible a passage which sets forth more profoundly the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones claimed, it's a foolish thing to say, he says, perhaps, but I was going to say that if I were asked which, in my opinion, is the most important and crucial passage in the whole of Scripture, I would include Romans 3, 21 through 31. So what does Paul say? Let's look at Romans 3, 21. We're going to read to verse 26 together and cover that section this morning. Paul says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here, we gain great clarity on how the gospel works. How is it that God can actually accomplish our salvation? That's what Paul spells out for us here. How can God truly save sinners like you and me? I want to draw your attention to four points this morning. First, notice this, that in the gospel, we see the righteousness of God revealed. Verse 21 Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed. But I want to draw your attention to the first two words of this verse, because we kind of just read past them, but I would argue that these first two words, but now, are some of the most beautiful and profound words in all of Scripture. Remember where we're coming from. We're coming out of this place where we are standing guilty and condemned before God. The weight of sin and guilt and condemnation is upon us, and we have no excuse, and all of a sudden... Like we've been sitting in a dark room of sin, the door cracks open and in comes the blazing light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, but now, these two words, so simple yet so profound, the light of the gospel now bursts forth in stark contrast to the darkness of sin. And you can almost hear from the the pen of the Apostle Paul a sigh of relief, but now, finally, I know many of you who've been sitting week after week under the the weight of Romans 1 through 3 are like, yes, finally we're here. I can breathe. And you see, this verse, this concept brings us all the way back to Romans 1.17. This is the great turn in Paul's argument here. In Romans 1.17, Paul has been making the case from that point onward to where we are at now. He says this, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It's manifested. Here, Paul tells us that the righteousness of God is manifested or revealed in the gospel in two ways. First, in a negative way. Notice this. He says, apart from the law. Now, that is to say what Paul has been telling us over the last couple of chapters, that saving righteousness is not gained 
by trying to obey the law. You can never earn a righteous standing before God by simply obeying the Word of God. You could never do it. The law did not teach you that you could gain life by works. Instead, the law, as Paul told us in chapter 3, verse 20, just the verse above this one, the law brought by its demands that which we could not meet and exposed to us the knowledge of our sin. That the law was God holding up his, his standard and saying, okay, measure yourself by my perfect standard. And the reality is every one of us looked at the law of God and said, well, I, I, I just, I'm so far short of that standard. But positively, we see this, that the righteousness of God is revealed through the law and the prophets. That term, law and the prophets, is shorthand for the Scriptures. It's used all throughout the New Testament to define the entirety of the Word of God, the revealed Word of God. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. If you were to simply look across the pages of the Old Testament, you would see them revealing perpetually someone who must come, a righteous one who would meet the demands of the law on our behalf. You see, the gospel is found in the pages of the Old Testament Scriptures. We don't often read it with a mind looking for the gospel and the truths of the gospel. It's there. It's, it's more subtle, I'll give you that, and it's in its embryonic form, and it is being progressively revealed in an ongoing manner. I love what St. Augustine said. He said this, that the New Testament is hidden in the Old, and the Old Testament is made open and explicit in the New. When we go back to the Old Testament, we see the truth of the gospel embedded there, but when we come to the New Testament, we see it being fleshed out and explained and expounded in, in deeper and more profound ways. But you see, if you were to go back to the beginning of your Bible, you would see very quickly that God promised a redeemer. He promised a rescuer. He promised that one single individual would come, and by this one individual, all of the nations of the earth, every human being who turned to this person could be blessed and made right with God. The Old Testament sacrificial system prefigured Jesus. It pointed to Jesus. Every, every time the Jews brought a sacrifice to the temple, they brought an animal in to be killed on the altar. They were being reminded and instructed that their sin required death, that the wages of sin is death. But they were also being reminded that God had made a temporary provision for their sins, that, that something else could die in their place so that they would not receive the judgment they deserved. That Old Testament sacrificial system was pointing towards the, the greater sacrifice the final sacrifice, the eternal sacrifice of Jesus Christ on behalf of all those who would believe through faith. Jesus made it very clear that the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, spoke of Him. He took the two men on the road to Emmaus back through the Scriptures in Luke chapter 24, and He showed them all the places that spoke of Him. I want to encourage you to, to learn to read your Bibles with this kind of a Christocentric lens, a view to seeing the gospel and Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. You see, the Old Testament is not simply a set of moral instructions. It's not simply a bunch of good examples for us to follow. It's not even a bunch of fun stories to be entertained by. 
The Old Testament and the New is the story of Jesus Christ. You see, the Christmas story doesn't begin in Luke chapter 2 or the beginning of the New Testament. The Christmas story begins in Genesis chapter 1. This is all God's story of how he would reunite man back to himself, that broken relationship because of sin, how it could be restored and humanity could be redeemed and reconciled. Are you looking for him? As you read your Bible, are you simply going and, and ticking the box and making your way through sections of Scripture, or are you actually looking at the pages of Scripture, looking at the Old Testament and seeing how it pertains to Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ? In the gospel, we see the righteousness of God revealed. Secondly, note this, we see the righteousness of God required. Verse 22 reminds us that Righteousness is something that we actually need, but we can never fully achieve. Paul writes these words, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. We're reminded here that this righteousness, again, is not because of something we could do, not because of anything we could achieve. It doesn't come from Within us, it must be actually given or gifted to us. I want to remind you what we've kind of gone over in, in past weeks, but just kind of help you kind of get in your mind again what it means to, to possess the righteousness of God. What exactly is the righteousness of God? We've defined it in, in three ways. First, the righteousness of God is a divine attribute. It's a characteristic of who God is. God is righteous. God just doesn't do righteous things. He does righteous things because He Himself is righteous. He is that perfect, holy standard. It's a divine attribute, but it's also a divine activity. If you were to read through the Old Testament, you would see the righteousness of God. That phrase is used to describe God as a deliverer. That God rescues his people. There's two sides to this, though. That God positively rescues his people from their dangerous and deathly situations. But on the negative side, the righteousness of God means he must punish sinners. And he must punish sin. That God pours out judgment. But third, and most importantly for our purposes, the way that Paul uses this phrase is, is mostly along these lines. It's a divine announcement. It's the declaration of a righteous status. To have the righteousness of God is to be made right with God. A righteous status which God requires if we are ever to stand before Him in His presence. Every one of us, what's demanded of all of us is to be perfectly righteous in every way. One author's put it like this. I'll put it up on the screen because I think it's really helpful to get our minds around this. It is the righteousness which his righteousness requires him to require. That's such a helpful phrase, by the way, when you're talking to people about why the gospel is so necessary. It kind of pulls together all of these, these thoughts and packages them really neatly into one phrase. It's that righteousness of God. It's the perfection of, of all that God is. That God, because of his perfect righteousness, requires of every one of us. We too must possess this perfect righteousness to be in his presence for all of eternity. And his own perfect righteousness demands that this be the case. 
Righteousness and the righteousness of God is used synonymously with this idea that we even see here with justification. And so let me give you another kind of helpful way to frame this so that we're on the same page here. We've used this language before. But to be justified or, or to have the righteousness of God means this. It means two things. Just as if I've always, or I've never sinned, excuse me, and just as if I've always obeyed. Okay, this is what God requires of every single person who will dwell with him for eternity. You must be this person just as if you've never sinned, just as if you've always obeyed. We all have to come the same way. The same thing is required of every single person. Why? Paul says it here. For there is no distinction. Christmas time, I don't know about you guys, we play a lot of board games around our house. And as I was thinking about this concept this past week, my mind went to this, this game that we had as kids. Some of you maybe, ha- maybe have it or, or had it. You remember the game Guess Who? You remember that game? The, the game's really simple, right? Guess Who? You had these little kind of pieces that ha- all had these pictures of, of individual kind of cartoon people on them that you kind of flapped up like little dominoes. And you sat across from your opponent, and you each had a card with the picture of a person on it You had to kind of put it there. You knew who you were. And then the other person's objective was to try to describe distinctive features about the person that they think is on your car. And then by process of elimination, they kind of knock down each of the people so that they hopefully funnel it to one individual and they can guess who you have on your card. You see, the interesting thing about this game is that there wasn't one single thing that every one of these people or pictures had in common based on their physical appearance. That was kind of the point of the game. There was something that was distinct about each and every one of them so that you could finally narrow it down to that one thing. You know, the same is true for humanity. Physically speaking, we all come in different shapes, colors, and sizes. Those sizes tend to fluctuate at certain points in life and in certain seasons. But you see, there is one distinct feature that we all have in common. And Paul tells us exactly what that is here. There is no distinction. In other words, we are all the same in this regard. Here's what he says. Look at it with me. This is such a a famous verse. You know it by heart, don't you? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's it. That's the human predicament. That's the human problem. That is what's true of every single one of us in this room, regardless of our race or ethnicity, regardless of our age, regardless of our gender, regardless of our socioeconomic status. Every human being has this same problem. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We've all failed at righteousness. Not one of us has lived just as if we've never sinned, and not one of us has lived just as if we've always obeyed. What's interesting here is that Paul uses a present tense verb to describe humanity. Here's how it reads in the original. 
For all have sinned and continue to fall short. That word, fall short there, that verb is in the present tense. It is an ongoing reality. There is no point, in other words, there's never a point in your life where you are ever, ever on your own in a position to be made right with God. You are constantly and perpetually falling short of the glory of God. Every day we wake up, listen, it's another day where we sin and rebel against a holy God. Amen? Every day. And by the way, he's not saying that we're all equally as short of the glory of God as if there's, there's no grading of sin. There are degrees of sin, for sure. That's why in the Old Testament especially, we see that there are different degrees of punishment for different kinds of sin. But in the end, that makes no difference. You see, when it comes to sin, you could, you could be so wicked and sinful, you could be like, like the man standing in the bottom of a coal mine, or maybe, relatively speaking, you're not quite as sinful. You know, you never committed murder or, or adultery, so maybe you put yourself on the top of, of a mountain peak, but neither person can reach up and grab a star. We're light years away from the righteousness that God requires. We are an eternity away. which is why only the gospel will do. The key to salvation, this is so important to understand, when you're sharing the gospel, maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ and you're trying to figure out what what the gospel is really all about. The key to salvation is realizing what is required from God, and that is this, listen, perfect righteousness. It's key. The second half of that is realizing and understanding how far you fall short of that. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, no man has ever provided nor ever will provide a righteousness that will satisfy God in the demands of his holy law. That's true. Which is why this passage is so amazing. Because here, Paul is explained to us how the gospel works to satisfy the demands of God and his law, and how God's gospel can make us righteous, can put us in a right standing with him. And so notice this third point. In the gospel, we see the righteousness of God realized. We see what the gospel accomplishes on our behalf. You see, here's the question that this text is forcing us to ask. How is it possible for man to be justified? How is it possible for man to have this perfect righteous status before God? And just consider this. If God justifies sinners freely by His grace, on what grounds can He possibly do that? You say, what do you mean? Well, here's what I mean. How is it possible for the righteous God to declare the unrighteous to be righteous without either compromising His righteousness or condoning their unrighteousness? That's a mouthful. But you see the point? How is it that a righteous God who must by His very nature punish sin, exact justice. How can this God make unrighteous people like us righteous without violating his own righteous character to judge? You see what he's saying? He's saying, 
if you are to get righteousness, God still must do something with your sin. That's our question. And God's answer is the cross. You see, many assume that God simply winks at sin. That God doesn't have to punish sin. He just simply, you know, sweeps it under the rug. He winks at us, says, you know, no big deal. That God, many of us believe this. Listen, and and most of the world believes this. That God can simply forgive sin without punishing sin. But like I said, that would violate God's own just character. That would make God, in effect, unrighteous. That would make God unworthy of all praise and adoration and glory He would violate his own holy character. The only way the wicked can be justified is if someone who met all of those perfect righteous standards died in our place. This one person, the Bible says, is Jesus Christ, God in flesh. What God did through the cross, through the death of His Son in our place, Paul now is going to explain in three powerful expressions. And he says this first, that the gospel needs to be understood in terms of this word here, redemption. That we are set free from sin's power. Look at verse 24. He says, and are justified by His grace as a gift. Look at this, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul shifts kind of metaphors here or pictures, and he moves from the legal realm into the marketplace. He picks a term that deals with buying and selling. People in the ancient world would have picked up on this language very quickly. In the Old Testament, it was used, this word redemption was used often for slaves who were purchased um, in order to be set free. They were said to be redeemed. And God, in the Old Testament, takes this word and this language, and He actually applies it directly to His own people, to the nation of Israel. It's used metaphorically of the people of Israel when they were redeemed out of bondage in Egypt, and then again in Babylon, and then finally restored to their own land. It becomes a a picture of both the condition and the salvation of humanity. All of humanity is in the same condition. We are enslaved to sin. Sin is our slave master. Sure, we we try to get out of this predicament. Every one of us, apart from Christ, all of humanity tries to get out of this bondage. We try to pick the lock with our own works righteousness. We try to bend the bars of our cell with our own ideologies or philosophies or maybe even other religious pursuits or intellectual pursuits. We try to get ourselves out of this bondage to sin, but nothing works. This is not a prison we can break out of. But you see, the Bible comes along and says we can't break ourselves out, but there is one who is strong enough, one who is powerful enough, one who can redeem us from the bondage of sin. His name is Jesus Christ. And he shed his own blood. That is the price of our redemption. He paid the price with his own blood, and he purchased us out of the slave market of sin. And now we belong to him, liberated from condemnation and the power of sin. That's what the gospel does. 
Secondly, Paul uses this expression, propitiation. And here's the idea he's getting at, that we are sheltered from sin's penalty. Look at how he puts this in verse 25. He says this, whom God, this is again speaking of Jesus, put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, this word propitiation is not a word that we, we use frequently. It's not in most of our vocabularies, I would guess. But to propitiate somebody simply means to placate their anger. It refers to the, the satisfaction of God's decree that death would be the result of and penalty for sin. Paul has been describing God's solution, remember, to the human predicament. And it's important that we just remember what exactly humanity deserves. And Paul has laid this out for us, so I just want to draw your attention back so we can get this word in its context and we'll better understand it. Look back, just flip a couple pages back in your Bible to chapter 1, verse 18. And let's just think deeply about how Paul expresses the penalty for sin. We're not just talking about physical death. He says in Chapter 118, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Turn to chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? You see, Paul hasn't been mincing words about what we deserve, has he? He has told us in no uncertain terms that, that humanity, listen, in the rebellion against God, deserves the full weight and fury of God's divine wrath. And where there is divine wrath, there is a need to avert that wrath. You see, God's wrath rests upon evil. His anger is righteous and just, and there is nothing we can do to placate it. God's wrath must be poured out for God to remain God. God's wrath must be unleashed upon wickedness and evil if God is going to be considered a just and righteous God. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, God gave the, the sacrifices to his people to make atonement. That's what the scriptures teach. But you see, again, that was a, a temporary kind of a, atonement. Always having to go back into the temple and offer one more sacrifice and placate the wrath of God, hoping that God would unleash his wrath because here we could make some form of atonement. But listen, all of those sacrifices, let me say it again, they pointed to the one final, true, and full sacrifice, the permanent and eternal sacrifice made by Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that will put an end to the entire sacrificial system once and for all. All of that system pointed to one person, the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world, who could make full and final payment for sin. I love what John Stott says. Listen, 
how he frames this for us. He says, according to the Bible, God's own great love propitiated his own holy wrath through the gift of his own dear son who took our place, bore our sin, and died our death. You can think of it like this. Listen. God himself gave himself to save us from himself. You see, the cross is the righteous basis on which the righteous God can make the unrighteous righteous without compromising his righteousness. It is only in the cross that we can see sin dealt with in full, God's wrath poured out. And as we'll see in a moment, sinners made right with God. You see, in Christ, we are sheltered from sin's penalty. The full weight of of God's wrath and fury poured out every last drop on Jesus Christ as He hung on the cross. And that's why Paul uses this final term, demonstration. The cross was a demonstration, reminding us that we have been spared from sin's payment. The cross was not just a divine achievement, it was a divine demonstration. It was a a public revelation declaring that God has made the way for man to be made right with God and God to be able to remain God. Here's how Paul frames this in verse 25, second half in verse 26. He says, this was to show, that word right there, to show, to demonstrate or to declare God's righteousness. Why? Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. You see, first, the cross is this demonstration and declaration that God is not slow to deal with sin, as some count slowness. That you see, previously, for thousands of years, think about this, what Paul is saying is for thousands of years, God determined to pass over people's sin. You you mean in, in what sense? That means that God didn't give sinners what they deserved the very moment they deserved it. He waited. He patiently endured the wickedness of humanity. He patiently endured your sin and mine. He, he, didn't, he didn't lash out like he justly could have. The moment we turned our back and rebelled against him, he spared us. He delayed. He waited. But the cross is the evidence. It is the public demonstration that God is dealing with sin. God is true, and God is righteous, and God is just. And it was to show, secondly, notice this, verse 26, it was to show, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How God would accomplish perfect justice And how God could still offer complete forgiveness, that was the mystery. See, the cross is the greatest demonstration of both God's divine love and divine justice. It's the only place a sinner can come and find both mercy and grace. It's the only way God can be both just and the justifier. 
The cross shows us how God could solve this problem. So the natural question that remains for us is how do we get what God is so freely offering to us in the gospel? How do we get this righteousness of God? How can we be made right with God today? Paul shows us finally that in the gospel, we see the righteousness of God received. In verse 21, I don't know if you kind of picked up on the language throughout this section. I hope you did. But I want to just draw it out to you and just see how it leaps off the page. How can we get this righteousness? Because after all, this is a righteousness that must be received and cannot be achieved. And we know that, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, he says, apart from the law. In other words, listen, our, our works righteousness, our attempt to earn a righteous standing with God, it's like running on a treadmill or riding a stationary bike. Go as long as you want, as hard as you want, and you can look as good as you think you want. But in the end, it gets you nowhere. Our works can get us nowhere with God. But here he tells us what exactly is required. Look at verse 22. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 24, by his grace as a gift. Verse 25, to be received by faith. Verse 26, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, God's righteousness, being made right with God, isn't something that can be achieved by us. It's received, and, and here we see so clearly it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no other way to be made right with God. In fact, one commentator said this, no other system, ideology, or religion proclaims a free forgiveness and new life to those who have done nothing to deserve it, but done everything to deserve judgment instead. On the contrary, all other systems teach some form of self-salvation through good works of religion, righteousness, or philanthropy. Christianity, by contrast, is a gospel, the gospel, good news that God's grace has turned away His wrath, that God's Son has died our death and borne our judgment, that God has mercy on the undeserving, and that there is nothing left for us to do or even contribute. Faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. And let me hasten to add that even the faith to believe is a gift from God. You see, the gospel is the great turning point. For all fall short of the glory of God. Every mouth is stopped. The whole world held accountable to God. But now, but now, but now, Paul says, Christ has come. At this present time, Christ has come. And this is what we celebrate in this season, don't we? Paul wrote in Galatians 4, he said, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
you haven't received the righteousness of God through faith today, listen, the Scriptures call you. God calls you today to receive the free gift of salvation. All you need to do is wholly surrender yourself, repenting of your sins, grabbing hold of Jesus by faith. See Him there dying in your place. See Him there paying the penalty you owed in full. See that there is no other way to the Father, only through Jesus Christ. See that Jesus Christ rose victorious from the grave three days later, conquering sin and death, and He offers to you this day life in Him. Grab hold of Jesus. He is our only hope. Grab hold of Him today and be changed forever. We desperately need the righteousness of Christ. And the beauty of the gospel is that God offers it freely to us. Believe in him and you shall be saved. As we close, I'm going to invite the worship team up and I'm going to encourage you now just to bow your heads. I want to read over us a prayer, pray over us. This is a Puritan prayer that was written hundreds of years ago. And I read it this past week, and it's, it's so fitting for what we looked at today. So just let the words wash over you. I'd encourage you to, to soak in these words, to even pray these words this morning as I read them. Lord, I would be the most miserable person in the world if my hopes were only in this life. Why? Because I am hopeless without Christ's righteousness. My life could never be comfortable. And there would be no hope at all of eternal life. If you denied me that hope, I would be the most miserable one of all. I may be happy without worldly enjoyments, but all things in the world cannot make me happy without this. So however you treat me in this world, whatever you deny me, Lord, deny me not this. I can be happy without riches and abundance, like Job and Lazarus were. I can be happy even if I am reviled and reproached, as was Christ and his disciples. I can be happy and comfortable in prison, as were Paul and Silas. But I cannot be happy without the righteousness of Christ. All the riches, places, or honors on earth will leave me miserable if I am without this. Even if I were rich and needed nothing, without this, I would still be wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. If I had all things that a person could desire on earth, what good would it do me without Christ's righteousness? What would riches do for me if they came with the wrath of God? What comfort would honor bring me if I remained a son of perdition or a child of wrath? What sweetness would there be in pleasure if I were on the path to everlasting torments? What miserable comforts and enjoyments are these without Christ's righteousness? Lord, however you deal with me in outward things, whatever you take from me, whatever you deny me, do not deny me Christ. Do not deny me a share in his righteousness. Amen.